Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're so happy to welcome Grace Bidalic back to the show. Grace is a Young Voices contributor. And Grace, you've also actually been promoted. You are now the uh, project uh, director for the Dissident Project. Tell us just a little bit about that. It sounds very interesting. Absolutely. Brian, it's so great to see you again and to be back on uh, Moving Forward. So the Dissident Project is uh, a project of Young Voices, obviously. Um, and it's all about connecting young professionals uh, who have firsthand insight into socialist authoritarianism in their home countries with student audiences across the country, um, primarily high school audiences. Um, and they these these young dissidents really provide um, perspectives, broad perspectives on what America can learn from current and former socialist states around the world. Now, why, why the uh, high school audience? Uh, why, why are we directing this message to them as opposed to uh, adults or, or people that are further along in life's path? Sure, absolutely. So obviously, as, as uh, social media is progressing um, and as, uh, as politics are reaching younger and younger audiences, we want to be able to reach younger audiences with these conversations. Um, kids are forming opinions earlier and earlier. And so more and more, we see that we need to be in younger classrooms, right? We see uh, conversations happening on college campuses about this stuff, but really where we need to be starting is high school campuses. Um, and so uh, that's why we started uh in high school classrooms. Um, and we've also recognized that, you know, younger generations really haven't seen the impacts of socialism on socialist countries. Um, and so uh, our dissidents were really passionate about talking to people at a young age. You had mentioned college campuses too. And I, I, I don't think this is, you know, ringing the alarm bell to, to point this out, but um, I've seen a lot of polls in recent years that have indicated um, socialism is, is found much more acceptable on the college campuses. So I, I like the idea of, of let's give kids a chance to hear from people who've actually lived under legit socialist systems and some of the authoritarianism and sometimes outright tyranny that comes along with that. Tell me just a little bit about the, the people who will be going out there as speakers for the dissident project. Absolutely. So these are trained young people. Um, they're experienced young people. They've trained with um, our PR resources at, at Young Voices. Um, and they're diverse. They're coming from places like Hong Kong, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea. Um, Daniel DiMartino, our founder, uh, is a Venezuelan dissident. Um, and you'll hear more about his story, I'm sure. You're going to hear firsthand from Grace Joe, from Francis, from Jorge. Um, you're interviewing them uh, later in this program. But I can tell you about a few other people on our roster um, who are really spectacular. Uh, Franklin Camargo uh, is a Venezuelan refugee. He's been here since uh, 2019, and he's now at the Atlas Society, um, and he's the student programs coordinator there, um, and he shares his story very eloquently. We have a woman named Maria Ferdinanda Bello, um, who is also Venezuelan. She fled her home country at the age of 17. Um, and she's featured in a web uh, a video on our website uh, that was made by PragerU that people can go and see the distantproject.org. Um, and then we have Sonny Chung, and he is a he's a young politician. He calls himself a young politician in exile. Um, he was 
the founder of the Hong Kong Higher Institutions uh, International Affairs Delegation. Um, and he was elected in these pro-democracy camp primaries before Beijing completely dismantled the system um, and forced him into exile. And so these are people with real um, down-to-earth firsthand experiences in these socialist countries. They've seen their home countries uh, devolve. Um, and they are the perfect people to be warning young people about the effects of socialism in America. I've had a chance to hear a number of these young people speak or to, to interview them before. And one of the things that has really impressed me is this isn't just a case of, well, they've got an ax to grind and they're out there to complain. They're actually out there as voices of warning and, and people mm-hmm. who love freedom and, and see the, the incredible blessing that it is. And yet uh, they also recognize that uh, there are a lot of people in the world who just don't understand how easy it is to lose if you're not paying attention. Right. They I mean, at the root of this organization is a love for uh, for America and for uh, the ideas of liberty. Right. This is why. this program was started uh, by Daniel DiMartino because he loves this country so deeply and he has great hope for where this country could go. Um, but he also, again, has seen the destructive forces of socialism at work in his home country um, and wanted to make sure that uh, America was rid of that that ideology of all co- at all costs. Yeah, it's I mean, it's one thing for people to say, well, you know, how can you say you don't like it? You've never, ever tried it or you've never lived under it. How could you know? But these are voices of, of people who have lived under it. And in, in some cases, I know we're going to be um, we're going to be interviewing uh, Grace Joe, who escaped yes. from North Korea. And yes. I mean, it, it doesn't get <laughs> more more difficult than, than something like that. That's true. And if you can go and find the. um the interview that Jorge did on Young Turks, the Young Turks Network with Chang Geiger, um, he speaks uh, very eloquently about that um, with somebody who, again, has never experienced socialism firsthand. Um, and I think that actually on the other end of that debate, um, the person on the other side of the aisle was was rethinking his ideology. So talk to me a little bit about how people who who want to support this effort. I know that uh, this is a nonprofit organization. You aren't sending these guys out to collect huge speakers fees. You're sending them out there with a message of freedom for people who resonate with that and want to help. Is there a way that they could donate or otherwise help support this? Yeah, absolutely. We've got a myriad of ways you can get involved. So we want to reiterate just for everyone on the podcast, listening to the podcast now that um, bringing a speaker to your institution, to your high school campus is completely free of cost to, to the host organization. Um, and this, you know, we wanted to enable as many people as possible um, to bring speakers in uh, for whom cost might be prohibitive. So we wanted to make sure that people know that. Um, if you wanted to visit our website, again, the dissidentproject.org, just dissidentproject.org, or visit our socials, which are the same across all platforms, um, at dissidentproj, P-R-O-J. Um, you can donate through our website. You can find our website on our socials. You can request a speaker. Um, you can follow our socials. Uh, and you can check out our additional educational materials on our website, which include videos from Free the People, resources from the Victims of Communism Museum, um, and our friends over at the Heritage Foundation. So there are many ways that you could get involved. I love it. And and uh, I think that uh, this is something 
that I hope will catch on. Right now, you have, what, eight um, qualified speakers that will go out and represent the dissident project. Do you see that number growing over time? We do. And we've already had significant interest. Um, We're hosting our first annual summit, uh, our our speaker summit in D.C. this coming August. Um, And there they will receive uh, the finest media training that they can possibly receive um, and then be sent out. Um, And we hope that uh, more dissidents will, will come on board. We know that they will. And and I want to make clear, too, this isn't just, oh, well, you know, now they've made it to America and it's a cushy speaking tour kind of thing. For speaking up as they do, there are some very real risks involved for them as dissidents. I mean, they, I guess what I'm trying to say is they have skin in the game, don't they? They really do. They really do. And as you can tell, I mean, again, Sonny has been exiled from his home country. Um these these speaking opportunities are not uh, without risk to our speakers. And so we're very thankful um, and uh, very proud that they would join forces with the Dissident Project in the way that they are. And again, it's dissidentproject.org, correct? That's That's the website? Yes, it is. Okay, we will include a link to that in the show notes. Now, I'm going to shift gears here for just a moment, just because you are a regular contributor to Young Voices. Tell me a little bit about what is, is going on in your world. What uh, What is on your radar screen in the minute or so that we have left? Oh, sure. Thank you, Brian. Um, I am a regular contributor, of course, to uh, to Young Voices and uh, my my articles are, are, are put out through the Young Voices editors, but I'm also... Um, I write theatrical reviews for the New York Sun, so have been attending a lot of openings uh, and reviewing a lot of shows for the New York Sun. And you can find all of my reviews um, at Grace Daily, D-A-L-E-Y, Badalik, B-Y-D-A-L-E-K dot com. Um, And you can read any of my other articles there as well. Got to ask this. Are things starting to feel a little bit more normal, a little more settled in in New York City? Um, You know, as we've seen, life has started to come back to to the city in a very real way. I think actually median uh, rent in Manhattan just reached $5,000. So uh, we're definitely seeing more energy, more people ready to come back to the city. I think unfortunately with that, we have seen a wave of violent crime, um, unlike we've seen in a long time. Um, and so, uh, you know, with the pros are also the cons. Okay. Yeah. I, you're our person on the inside, so I'm always going to ask you this kind of <laughs> stuff. Grace Bidalic, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome Grace Joe to the show. And Grace, I hope I'm saying your last name correctly. Did I, did I come Yes, that close? is correct. Okay. Grace is here on behalf of the Dissident Project for Moving Forward with Young Voices and with Young Voices Organization. And she actually has, uh, she she grew up or was, was at one time a child in North Korea. And I'd like you to, first of all, tell us, Grace, how did you connect up with Young Voices? And then I want to know more about your story of growing up and eventually escaping from North Korea. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me this um, uh, great um, show. Uh, it's my, my great pleasure. And um, I met uh, Daniel Martinez at one of the um, uh, events through uh, Victims of Communism um, 
uh, event invitation um, that was meeting uh, the President Trump at the time at the White House. And I was one of the uh, uh, like refugee from North Korea and he was from Venezuela. And after the meeting, we had a short chat. And about two years later, he contacted me and explained about this uh, dissident project. And I feel like, wow, this is a great event. And I always had heart about the um, education and uh, knowledge about to our two young children. And I also want to help young children from my country as well. So for young generation, I have a big heart. And then he also had a similar uh, goals and uh, heart about it. So I was like, well, let's do it. <laughs> That's great project. That's why I jumped in and I joined this project. And I'm very excited and looking forward to the future opportunities. <clears throat> I agree. Daniel Daniel is a wonderful individual. And I'm so happy to see you adding your voice to his as well as other voices about what it is like to live under a government that knows no limits to its powers. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience growing up in North Korea. What, what are some of the things that, that you bring with you as, as memories of, of growing up there? Sure. Well, I was born in 1991. And I um, as world already know, North Korea suffered great famine during this time. And from 1994 to 2000, um, it was very um, severe. So everybody were um, starvation and uh, died by hunger, uh, frostbite, uh, disease that's not controlled. Um, and a lot of people, they escape and they die on the road. Um, and many people, they also get tortured and passed away on the you know, like in the detention center, labor camp, in the police station, such and such. Um, so my family is not the exception. So my family um, kind of fall into that category. Um, my father and my mom, they tried so hard to feed us in North Korea, but they they tried many different ways. They tried to do small business, like make a buns in the house and sell in the village, uh, make like a, a clothes and hats, trying to exchange with the food. Um, they tried to travel to different city to bring other goods and sell in the city, but none of them works because our country do not have a freedom. Everything has to be controlled by the government and everything trip has to be reported and then um, ask those uh, officials who get the permission we have to bribe them but you know during the famine all children are dying in the house and who who can afford all these goods to those officers so um, illegal travel started inside of North Korea that's why a lot of people got punished um, so after they tried so many different ways my family could not uh, still could not find food in North Korea so my father decided to go to China to get help from his relatives and about third time he got in trouble of course and one of the neighbor reported him and he got trouble he went to the prison um, and it's not the actual prison in North Korea prison system it's very different than here um, so in the little uh, countryside detention center he got bitten interviewed and um, he he suffered a lot for several months and they decided my, uh, transfer my father from that countryside small detention center to the city prison which my father was originally came from so they were transferring him to the city but the train in north korea is very slow um 
and sometimes it takes a week or three days to get to you know uh, the distance between uh, maybe from Georgia to Florida. Wow! Um, like like a very short train for us, like a eight hours drive or something. But the train will take about three days. Um, so during three days, my father was handcuffed in a train. He was dehydrated. She, he was uh, starved. And after three days later, the officer found out my father passed away. All this is since reported by uh, one of the inmates who were in that car, in that train together. And he was transferred to the city prison, came back to us and later tell, told us the true story. But the reality was the government told us the wrong information information they didn't want to take a responsibility so they just sent a small letter with one single person standing in front of her door and read that my father was trying to escape from the train so the officer found out and shot him to death that was the original statement that government gave to us so there are a lot of unfortunate uh, unfortunate uh, stories from individuals from north korea but one main thing is north korea says the communist party is the great and the best from the world um, and they sound so beautiful education is free hospital is free and a lot of stuff are free and they say like we all will be great with the community but unfortunately nothing is free in north korea uh, individually and all those um, things are cost so much uh, values and uh, money and sometimes we have to put our life into it. So I will say the communist uh, party and communism is sounds great and socialism is sounds beautiful, but in reality it's terrible. It's very different, isn't it? Tell me yes. about how you escaped. How how were you able to escape North Korea? Well, it's a long story, but if I put it short, um, the first escape was uh, in 1998. I was six and a half years old. Actually, it was actually today um, we crossed the Tumor River. Uh, it was bright daylight and my mom, she put me in her backpack and she was holding my one of the oldest sister uh, in her hand. And my sister was holding walking cane and three of us swim across the river. And before we get to reach the uh, river, we have to walk for three days, like unpaved road, mountains. Uh, we have to hide during the daytime from the uh, civilians and we have to walk like pitch dark nights. So we don't even know which path we are walking to, but we're only watching the moonlights and starlights and trying to find a pathway, which is north. And um, finally, we get to the river and we kind of observed about 30 minutes and see whether soldiers are around there or no. And once we found out there's nobody, my mom managed to come down to the mount, uh, from mountain to the river and we crossed the river. Uh, after we crossed the river, we have to walk and uh, find someone from China side to get help. And thankfully at that time, old couple, um, they fed us first and that was the first time I saw the dog actually didn't want to eat the meat soup with the white rice. <laughs> 
And I was just shocked and traumatized at the time. Like, wow, we were my brother and my grandmother. They died because we couldn't find one steamed potato. But look at that wow. dog in the front yard. He doesn't want to eat that meat soup with white rice. So I was look, staring at the window for about an hour and staring at the dog. That's my first memory. I, I'm so sorry that we are up against the clock here. We're running out of time, but um, Grace, for people who want to follow you, where can they find you? Are, are you on social media? Yes, I am. Um, people can find me on the Instagram or Facebook. Uh, my Instagram ID is, let me quickly see my ID. It's at uh, GraceJoe number eight. Hey, again, we are talking with Grace Joe. She is part of the Dissident Project, which is through Young Voices. Grace, thank you for sharing your story, and I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're doing a special program today highlighting the Dissident Project. And if you want to check that out, I will include a link in the show notes, but you'll also be able to check it out at dissidentproject.org. And I'd like to welcome Jorge Galicia, who is joining us as one of those voices from the Dissident Project. Uh, Jorge, you are from Venezuela originally, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Hello. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and about how you connected up with Young Voices. Yes, of course. Well, uh, first of all, thank you, thank you for the invitation. And uh, I came, uh, I came from Venezuela. I, I would say a little bit more than three years ago. And um, you know, I was a political activist there. I was part of the opposition movement against the Maduro regime. Uh, I was also. I went to law school. I am an attorney back in Venezuela. And well, basically, the reason I came here is because in the year 2017, you know, I was so involved with the, uh, I was so involved in the protests that were going on against uh, Maduro that year. And well, because of that, one of my best friends uh, was captured by Maduro's political police. Uh, basically, there was a night we were texting through our phone. Uh, he told me like, Hey ma'am, um, there is a group of police officers standing right in my front door. Uh, and I said, and I said, well, don't make any noise, go hiding, remain quiet. But you know, I, I, I didn't receive any text message before uh, after, after telling him this. And well, that's when I knew that he was captured and, uh, I needed to go into hiding really quick because I was uh, for sure also being. Uh, look after by police, you know, um, I mean, they, they were they were looking for me uh, because uh, uh, he and I were part of the same team. We were doing exactly the same, the same kind of activism at the same time and location. So it was extremely dangerous situation for me. And uh, well, my friend, thanks God, he was released from prison approximately three months after this uh, event. And this also allowed me to resume little by little my ordinary life in Venezuela. And well, thanks to this, uh, the, the year later, I, I well, I decided first I decided to stay out away of the activism for a while because I didn't want to go through the same situation all over again. But uh, thanks to this decision, I I managed to finish my law degree 
And after I finished my law degree in 2018, I applied to participate in a leadership program named uh, Project Arizona, which is a program being held at Arizona State University. I was uh, selected to be part of it, thanks God, and that's the reason I was able to come here, right? Uh, well, once I was here, I, um, um, you know, after doing this program, I, I, I was reached out by the Fund for American Studies, which is an, a, a think tank. Uh, and they wanted me to do, you know, basically the, things, the same thing we're going to be doing with the dissident project. They uh, recruited me as a full-time speaker to go to visit several campuses across America to speak about my own life experience and to explain to college uh, students how socialism destroyed a former wealthy nation like Venezuela, right? And well, through the activism with the Fund for American Studies was uh, how I connected with uh, Daniel DiMartino, who is also uh, a Venezuelan who is doing this kind of activism across the states. Uh, he, he was doing it with Young Voices, and ha that's how I connected with, uh, with Young Voices. He introduced me to the organization. And then now we're going to be joining forces. Uh, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be part of this uh, dissident project as well. Uh, uh, and, and, and well, I want to be traveling to uh, visiting high school to, to basically do the same, right? To speak about my own life and to speak about Venezuela and to explain to these kids how socialism is not a good idea. You know, Jorge, I, I love the fact that uh, that you have decided to speak up. You were already speaking up in Venezuela. You have seen firsthand, you know, the transition from a very prosperous nation to a nation that is struggling under, you know, the, the worst kind of socialism. And I understand that one of the reasons that you and others are going forward to talk about your experiences is to, to serve as a voice of warning to make sure that we don't get too casual in our uh, attitudes towards socialism. I mean, there are a lot of people who seem to embrace it as, oh, no, it's great. It just makes everything fair for everybody, and, and it's really a good thing. Um, tell me how you can help them understand that uh, it's not the pretty picture that uh, that those who are advocating socialism tend to paint. Yeah, I think I think it is really useful for for them to have a different perspective. Um, you know, I of course I don't I don't really I don't still I don't I don't have a lot of experience yet with regarding high school, but at least what I what I have found in in, in college campuses is many of these students they the only perspective they have ever heard about socialism is uh, you know all of these uh, good comments and this uh, a lot of professors are selling to these kids the idea that socialism is something that actually could actually work despite all of the historical evidence that points that to, to the fact that it is not it has not it, ha, it has never worked out anywhere where it has been uh, implemented right so to bring to these kids that different approach that different perspective of, of someone who actually went through it through the system who lived uh, who, 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 who lived the consequences of, of this uh, horrible uh, political uh, political ideology right I think to let them hear someone saying something different to them is going to at least uh, maybe opening up their mind and maybe after once they have one once one perspective and, and 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 another perspective they are going to be able to make a, a you know to take their own decisions or or, or to take their their 
um, you know, the research uh, forward, right, to, 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 to be more informed about these topics because, uh, well, I, I, I do believe that many people here in America who claim to be socialist, socialist some, many times they don't even know what socialism is. Uh, for example, they always claim, yeah, we, we want the Norwegian uh, model or, or the Nordic kind of socialism and stuff like this, but at the same time they praise Hugo Chavez or Fidel Castro or uh, uh, they celebrate the victories of far leftist uh, candidates like the one where we, you know, like Castillo, the, pres the new president of Peru, or Gustavo Petro in Colombia. I mean, if you actually believe in the uh, quote-unquote Nordic kind of socialism, which is not not even socialism, well, you don't celebrate the, the you know you don't celebrate these uh, these figures, right? Because they are they are opposite to 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 the things that that are being done in in places like Norway, for example, right? So that's that's my, I think that's our mission to give them that new perspective to. Uh, to try to explain to them what socialism actually is. And once they have that information, they're going to be able to make better decisions. Um, we got about two minutes left here, Jorge. I have to ask you, at what point did people in Venezuela finally come to the realization that what was being done to their country and being done to them was not in their interest? I, I know that uh, authoritarianism very seldom comes all in one swift motion it usually comes in very gradually and incrementally at what point did people recognize "Ooh, this is going a direction we don't want it to go well that's a really hard question for me to answer but if i have to guess i would say that the collapse of the system became completely obvious at least from my point of view in the year in the in the late 2013 2014 this was uh, the period of time when we started to see, you know, big lines to get just a piece of bread, uh, just to to, pay, to 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 buy, uh, I don't know, paper tower, towels or uh, stuff like this. It it be, the the quality of life decreased dramatically in a sh in a really short period of time, um, and yeah, that's that's my guess. Late 2013, 2014, and every single year after that. Uh, the quality of life of Venezuela became um, horrible. Uh, internet connection started to fail. Um, the, the, the inflation levels started to, to increase dramatically. The scarcity all over, electricity failing, water supply failing. I mean, every single aspect of, 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 of uh, every single basic service started to fail. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the transition, because I, I, I was part of the middle class, uh, fa me, um, I was a member of the middle class in Venezuela. That means that my family and I used to go to restaurants every once in a while. We used to have, uh, uh, I, I don't know, savings. I, I used to have great birthday parties when I was a child. And then in that year, at least 2013, 2014, and every single year after that, the transition of from being a a, a member of, of the of the um, uh, middle class to being basically broken it it, it, it was uh, you know extremely evident I, I basically in the year in the 2016 15 17 
I even stopped eating properly. At some point, wow. uh, we were we were we weren't even able to eat meat anymore. So I got to yeah, stop you there, Jorge, the because we are unfortunately out of time. Again, we are talking with Jorge Galicia. Where can people find you on social media? You can find me at uh, Twitter and Instagram at Jorge Galicia ninety five. Very good. That's Thank right. you so much for being my guest. No, thank you for the invitation. I hope to do it again. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome another member of the Dissident Project. Her name is Frances Way. And Francis, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, first of all, let's talk just a little bit about uh, who you are. You are um, you are actually a native of Hong Kong, if I'm correct. Is that is that true? Well, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and I left Hong Kong when I was 21 year old. And here I am. I'm living in America, and um, I'm an activist in exile. Recently, got the political asylum in the U.S. Um, and yeah, I'm now an activist for We the Hong Kongers, which is an organization I started um, two years ago. Um, and yeah, I I just happened to um, be found by uh, Young Voices and um, they found me uh, on Twitter and um, had a coffee, something like that. And then I was um, very fascinated with their work and they talked to me about the dissidents um, for uh, the the dissidents project, and I was really um, interested in in participating in that project because my I previously had public speaking um, background, and I really think that by bringing my stories to um, to high schools or you know colleges, um, we would be able to bring the story of Hong Kongers to. Um, our children, our, our next generation, and we'll be able to use our story to um, alert people about the danger of communism and to um, really like bring the topic of Hong Kong's to um, the classroom um, of in the U.S. And I think that's very important. And somehow this is something that is missing in American education. Francis, I seem to remember prior to um, late 2020, late before COVID, you know, before COVID became all that everybody was talking about, I seem to remember there was a fairly prolonged period of some very serious protests for freedom in Hong Kong. And, and likewise, there were some pretty serious examples of the Chinese government cracking down on those protests. And um, let's talk just a little bit about the relationship between China and Hong Kong, because um, I'm not sure that I understand it correctly, but Hong Kong was under British rule for what, nearly a hundred years? Is that right? Yes. And um, it was, it was handed, um, it was under sovereignty of the uh, British um, after the Opium War. And uh, we basically developed a very interesting mixed culture in Hong Kong where you found like a hint of um, like Chinese culture, but then there is a mixture of British culture too. And so it, Oftentimes when people tell me, oh, I've been to Hong Kong, they would tell me it's a very special city. Um, it's it's something, you know, it's a very unique city and they all, all of them loved it. Um, it it's easy to just, you know, get used to it, the, the environment. People are very adaptive. Um, it's just a very 
um, amazing, interesting city that we all fall in love to. And um, and during that period of time of, um, you know, colonization, people also developed a, a very special identity. Um, and that's not it's something different from like saying we're Chinese or, or British, but rather than that, we developed our own Hong Konger identity. And so in 1997, when the British government decided to hand uh, hand Hong Kong over back to China, um, it people have a mixed feeling about it. It's it's somehow there is an uncertainty, and um, people weren't sure like if it's a good decision, and and we weren't even like the people of Hong Kong weren't even in the process of making that kind of decision. It was a compromise. Uh, it was a, a discussion between the Chinese government and the British government. And so, you know, the, the future of Hong Kong was a, a mist, like it was so uncertain for all of us. And um, it was handed over back to China. And we became uh, something like a, they call it a special administrative region. And um, which means that we are still part of uh, China, but we're operated in a, a special, like a different system. And so they promised to practice one country, two systems in Hong Kong and and say that, you know, everything would stay the same and operate the same um, for 50 years so that we can enjoy the same kind of freedom um, and have our, our own, like, have our own system, our autonomy, our own government um, to to run the the city. And so this is something they call special administrative region. Um, but it's still, you know, the Hong Kong government is still under the Chinese government. It's just that we, we have like a special uh, jurisdiction. We have our own, um, you know, legal system, our own law um, and our own government, basically. And so people got used to having, you know, enjoy the freedom of speech, freedom of press, which is something you can't find in China. Um, and something, this is something that has been going on for 25 years. And in, um, you know, in the, in the once um, President Xi Jinping um, got the, their, uh, his position come to place as a president, everything seems to go down really quick. And, um, uh, situ the situation got worsened. Um, they try to crack um, crack us down and try to oppress us and take away, diminish the freedom of speech and uh, the the civil society in Hong Kong, um, which caused what uh, the 2019 movement to happen. And that's something um, really. Uh, I would say that's the the movement that. Um, is that, that was the last fight of Hong Konger, and um, in in 2020, you you basically wouldn't like right now. You can't see any protest in Hong Kong anymore. People in Hong Kong they were just working and living under great stress, great pressure under the rule of China, and many people left Hong Kong. Um, they uh, migrated to another country. And for people like me, like an activist and a journalist, I had to flat Hong Kong and, um, you know, seek for asylum in the U.S. And I wouldn't be able to go back to Hong Kong because if I ever go back, I would face, you know, up to 10 years of jail in jail.
And this is uh, just showing how um, oppressive this this regime is and their expressionist um, ideology is how how is it harming and demolishing our civil society and democracy in Hong Kong. Francis, I have to ask you, even though you're not actually in Hong Kong, but you are speaking up on behalf of the people of Hong Kong, on, on behalf of the, the freedoms and, and uh, the, the traditions that they are losing, you know, thanks to the Chinese cracking down, this puts you at some risk. I mean, e- even though you're not there as a dissident, you are still at risk. For instance, I understand um, you, you catch some pushback sometimes from Chinese students who don't appreciate you speaking out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, censorship is everywhere. Like Chinese censorship, um, transnational repression is is, is real. It, it's happening in the U.S. and the U.K. We have many uh, we've had, we have heard of many stories of Hong Kong students. Um, getting, you know, backlash and being assaulted by other Chinese students for simply talking about their home country, like talking about Hong Kong and their their own story, and um, it, it's somehow it's it's hard to imagine. Like these people are not paid by the Chinese government, but they were so hotwired um, since they were born when they were in China that. This is the country that they are loyal to. And even if they go, you know, even if they are studying abroad in the U.S. and they see something that they don't like, then they will report it to the, to the Chinese government. And um, this would get you in trouble. And this national security law in Hong Kong right now is exactly uh, an example of how the Chinese government is trying to cross their hand to Hong Kong's freedom. And the the kind of white terror is something that silenced people. Um, You know, people get very frustrated and scared to speak up. But, you know, I think that's one of the emotion that is like one of the reality that um, we have to face uh, and the government wants us to feel. And I think you know, for me, I I don't have anything to lose. Like I've already left Hong Kong, and I have the responsibility to speak up for the people who are still back home, who are still under that kind of great pressure that wouldn't be able to speak up. And so I I, I understand that I have that kind of responsibility to speak up for them. Yeah. All right, Francis. Unfortunately, we are up against the clock here, which means we are just about out of time. We're talking with Francis Hui. Uh, how can people follow you on social media? Well, you can simply search me up, Francis Hoy. Um, I am uh, on Twitter. My name is Francis underscore Hoy. And I'm all on Facebook and Instagram, too. So you'll be able to find me if you search Francis Hoy. Thank you for speaking out. And I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Thank you.